One thing we talk about a lot here is just how powerful invitation is. Something so small, something that shouldn't be as scary as it is, inviting someone out to a a church service or a small group or a men's ministry event or women's Bible study or an outreach presentation, and yet such a small thing can make such a huge difference in someone's life. And Sometimes I think the reason it's so scary is it is so powerful that the enemy would not want us to spit out those words, would you want to come to church with me on Easter? And yet, this morning, even this text that we'll look at in a moment reminds us that small, seemingly insignificant acts can be extremely powerful. And that is true with invitation. Whoever God is putting on your heart to to give an invite to something in this next week, do it. See what God does. So many people, like Larry said, will say yes if they're invited. And God does amazing things when people come in contact with his people, with his family, with his community. This morning we see a similar type of power in something small, a small act of compassion in the book of Matthew chapter 27. So if you have Bibles, turn there please or open up your Bible app to Matthew 27, 57. Matthew has 28 chapters and so we've got this week, next week, spoiler alert, we're talking about the resurrection. And then the week after, we're going to throw a party and celebrate that we have walked through the whole book of Matthew in two and a half years, uh, and so we've got three weeks left of that. So today, we find ourselves, we'll read out loud Matthew 27, 57 through the end of the chapter. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we read these stories of people preparing for Jesus to get buried and stay buried. And we can't help but think about what's coming next. The tomb couldn't hold him. Death could not keep its grip on Jesus. A seal, a guard, a company of guards could not keep the Son of God from raising from the dead, walking out of the tomb, and ascending into his glory 40 days later. We're excited to celebrate Easter next week as we think about the resurrection and its implications for our lives and for the world and for humanity and for history And yet this morning we pray that you would give us the insight to see this passage through the eyes of folks who didn't know the resurrection was coming. 
through the eyes of Joseph of Arimathea, who was acting as if Jesus was about to be buried forever. Through the eyes of these women who are sitting there mourning as their Savior is put in the ground. And through the eyes of these religious leaders and political leaders and military officials who thought the whole resurrection talk was just a hoax waiting to happen. We pray that you would give us a moment to rest in their perspective so that we might take in this scene as it actually happened. As we think of these folks who are mourning, we think of issues in our own lives where we are mourning the death of a relationship or the death of someone that we love, their physical death or the death of a season or the death of a job. We pray that as we read through this text, we can glean the lessons that we might glean from those who are mourning and living and moving on as if Jesus is gone for good. We thank you for this text. We pray that it would be impactful to us and that you would open our hearts even now to hear the message you have for each of us individually and for all of us as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we step into this section of Matthew 27, it just seems like Jesus' life and ministry is over. I don't know if you've ever been there in a moment where someone's life literally ends, a hospital room or sitting next to a bed in hospice care, and you get the, the sad but honoring ability to be in someone's presence when they pass away. It's an unforgettable experience that comes with a distinct emotion. And if you've ever been in that room with someone you love or someone that's close to you, you you know that something happens the moment that their life ebbs away and you get this realization that it's over now. All all this work that that you've been doing with them to get better in their health, it's it's over now. This whole season of chaos and craziness, it's it's over now. This person that you loved and this relationship you've had in 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 a real tangible way, it's over now and you can find yourself sitting there and I've been in that room a few different times with people that I love and care about and as you watch that happen something comes over you where you realize you're entering into a new stage of life and I remember for me when I've walked through those seasons with my mom or my grandfather or different people in my life that I got to be there near the end with them I had the same feeling at the same time of it's, it's over and I don't like this <laughs> I don't want to be in this room. I don't want to be watching this happen. I don't want to see these orderlies coming in and taking these tubes out. And I don't want to see that any, I don't want to see chaplains. I don't want to see anybody, right? It's, but here's where we are. Something is gone or someone is gone. A season is gone. A relationship is gone. And, and now I'm going to have to learn how to live on the other side of this. This is the emotion that I feel as I, as I imagine what it would be like to be there with Joseph of Arimathea, to be there with these women who are sitting opposite the tomb. This is not just the death of Jesus. This is an end of an era. And this was one who had promised he would do great things, and, and now he's in a hole in the ground with a rock in front of him. This was the one who was going to be the king of Israel. 
This was the one who was going to be the king of the world. This was going to be the one who would ascend to his throne and rule and reign like no one else. And now he's gone. It's over. Now the disciples have scattered. They're nowhere to be seen. The crowds that hailed him king on Palm Sunday have been heckling him for hours on the cross. And then he died and he was alone and deserted. And this random guy, Joseph of Arimathea, we've never heard of before, comes out of the woodwork and and prepares his body for burial. And we know that God has prepared Joseph of Arimathea for this moment, that this is his calling in life. He has the means to provide this tomb. He's got the heart of compassion to provide this burial. He feels the leading of the Lord to participate in this way, and it's a beautiful thing, and yet... There's something discouraging about watching this scene and realizing that all the people who should have been there are gone. Where's Peter? Where's James? Where's John? Where's Judas? Where's Matthew? It's over. Jesus is put in the tomb alone. And it's almost like we get to watch as the hospital bed is wheeled away and the tubes are put away and the coroner is coming and, and we just get to watch as a fly on the wall as everyone cleans up because this era is done. And that feeling we get when someone passes away and we know that this season has come to an end, it's a... It's a feeling that we get, not just with physical death, but we get that same emotion. We have that same experience at the end of any type of era. If you've ever walked with someone through end-of-life issues, you had that emotion when they passed away, but you also had that same emotion when you watched that loved one go into the nursing home or when you watch them go into hospice care, or when you watch the dementia take over and you realize this person's not recognizing me anymore, you had that emotion, didn't you, where it was... It's over. Not like their life is over, but this relationship we've enjoyed up to this point, that's not coming back. That memory is not coming back. This fight to keep them independent, it's not coming back. This is a new stage now, and I don't like this stage. Some of us have had that emotion, even in our marriages. You've been fighting with your husband or fighting with your wife about the same thing for years and years and years. And then one day you have one fight about the same thing and you walk away and you get that feeling that this is over. This issue is not going to get resolved. My spouse is not going to change. We've tried every way. We've tried the counseling. We've tried the fighting. We've tried the serving. We've tried everything. This is who they are. They have no intention of changing. And there's this sobering emotion that hits us that I don't think this is going to get better. We get that at work. You fight with your boss or you're at home. You fight with your parents, trying to get them to see your point of view. And yet at some point we kind of hit that wall and we realize this person's not changing. All the plans I had there, it's over. Jesus' life is over. It seems that his ministry is over. And everyone has deserted him. 
except for a group of women. Did you notice that verse as we were reading through this passage? It's sandwiched between Joseph of Arimathea talking to Pilate about the body and these guards and religious leaders talking to Pilate about the body. There's a simple verse right in the middle of the two sections in verse 31 where it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Sitting there. When everyone else had fled, they're still sitting there. When everyone else was acting like it was done and over, they're still sitting there. While Joseph's burying him, while the religious leaders are trying to <laughs> seal the tomb, they're just sitting there. This verse struck me this week as significant. And you can kind of breeze it away and say, well, they weren't doing anything. They were just sitting there. But why did Matthew include that phrase that they're sitting there? I think what we see in this passage is something beautiful happening that maybe you've never noticed before. And that when all people had fled, this group of women who had always been with Jesus and were never noticed for it, they're still there until the end. This morning, I want to give a little bit of encouragement for the next few minutes for those of you who are walking through a season that everything is pointing to, it's over, and yet you're still there, you're still serving. You're still in your marriage, even though it seems like it's over. You're still loving that person, even though it seems like they don't recognize you anymore because of their dementia, and it seems like that relationship is over. You're still at work, even though your boss seems like he's never going to change, but you're just serving and doing your thing, and you feel like it's the right thing to do. I think we see encouragement in this passage for those of us who keep sitting there when everything points to the fact that it's over. So if that's you this morning, I think this text is for you. you know, as I looked at the life of these, these women who are beautifully sitting there alongside Jesus' body as he's being buried, I have to confess to you this morning, I felt like I should do this, that as I started realizing how powerful this, these women's lives were being, the first thought I had was, I wish it was Mother's Day on Sunday. Like, this would be a really good Mother's Day sermon, you know? Talking about women who serve behind the scenes, and women are amazing, right? And we give them one Sunday a year, and on Mother's Day Sunday, that would be a really good one. And then as quickly as that thought of, ooh, Mother's Day came up, there came this conviction of, why do we just talk about how amazing women are on Mother's Day? You get 51 weeks to talk about all the amazing men in the world, and then one day a year, They should feel so honored because (laughs) 51% of the world gets one Sunday a year, right? And and I think that we've had a lot of great conversations, me and folks in our church community, about the underrepresentation of women in society and in the workplace and in the church and in leadership and and how we might elevate women in in our church. And and that is something that we need to do and keep working on. And as I had that Mother's Day thought, I thought, oh man, I got work to do in my own life too. And yet I had to wonder, why is it that in Jesus' ministry we never hear about women? Right? Was Jesus someone who didn't empower women? Was Jesus a leader who didn't care about 51% of the world? Was, did he just step into a culture of oppression and add oppression onto it? And, and we know the answer is no. 
That if you study Jesus in the way that he did leadership in his context, he was revolutionary in the way that he honored women and elevated women and gave dignity to women and came alongside women and sent women out to do amazing things. Jesus was amazing at bringing dignity and honor and leadership to the female gender. And yet you have to ask the question, why is it that if these women were so elevated in Jesus' ministry that we never hear about why is it that when you think about Matthew you think about oh yeah I remember the apostles and the story you don't remember a lot of story if it's about women remember a lot of stories about men there's a couple stories about women and what I realized as I studied the role of women in Jesus ministry is that they're there every step of the way but they're always in the shadows look at verse 56 or 55 and 56 this is where Jesus is being crucified. All the men have left, right? Except for the Apostle John. He's still there at the cross. And at the crucifixion, Matthew points out that many women were there watching from a distance. They're off in the shadows. They're staying a stone's throw away. And then Matthew says this. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When Matthew says that these women have followed Jesus from Galilee, it doesn't mean that over the last three days they came down from Galilee. What Matthew's trying to point out is that ever since Matt, Jesus left Galilee, these women have been there in his midst ministering to his needs. You know when Jesus left Galilee? Matthew 19. So for nine chapters of the book of Matthew, Matthew's pointing out here that these women who are at the crucifixion when everyone else has deserted him, they've been there the whole time. He says, ministering to Jesus' needs. Not teaching, not getting the spotlight, not doing things that are getting glory for themselves, staying in the background, serving their Lord in whatever ways he had needs. So doubtless when Jesus would come back from a day of teaching, he's enjoying a meal prepared by some of these women. Or when Jesus needs to have his feet washed, a woman among, him, among them are washing his feet. When Jesus feels sick, there's a woman who's caring for him. When Jesus has a long day, there's women who are praying for him, caring for him, serving him. Who knows what they were doing? But Matthew says that the whole time Jesus has been ministering since chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, 23 and 24 and 25 and 26 and all of 27, these women have been there serving him. You know, Jesus talks a lot about the fact that we should be servants. And he says, when you do things for the least of these, it's as if you've done them for me. Right? The people in Jesus' world who had actually done those things for him were these women. These were the women who brought literally Jesus the cold cup of water. These are the ones who literally washed Jesus' hands and feet. These are the ones who literally cared for Jesus in the way he said, figuratively, we would care for him by caring for the least of these in this world. These women did it hands-on, and they never got any credit for it. We don't read a lot about these women and the amazing things they did for Jesus. They stay in the shadows. You know, the two times that these women kind of come into the spotlight they're not in the spotlight pointing at themselves. They're in the spotlight giving glory to other people. There's a moment where the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes out and says to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, my prayer is that you would elevate my children, right? Not about her, but about these kids of hers. 
There's a woman who comes out of the shadows when Jesus and his disciples are preparing for a meal together. And she breaks into the men's circle and she breaks open an alabaster jar of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. And while everyone's saying, get this woman out of here, Jesus is saying, no, let her stay. What she's doing is beautiful. It's a costly act of sacrifice. This is a worshipful act. This woman came out of the shadows just to worship Jesus and then she goes back into the background again. Even in this moment here in Matthew 27, when Joseph of Arimathea is coming to prepare the body of Jesus for burial, we learn in the book of Matthew that Jesus' body has already been prepared for burial. That when that woman broke open that alabaster jar and put it out on Jesus' feet and he said, this is a good thing she's doing, he says, she did this to prepare me for burial. You kind of expect that these women who were sitting there opposite the tomb could stand up and yell at Joseph of Arimathea, what are you doing? We already did that. But they don't. They're humble. They're behind the scenes. They're just there to be with Jesus because that's what they signed up for. I think there's something to the beauty of the female gender in the book of Matthew that's notable and we should talk about, but at the same time, I don't think this whole humble servants behind the, th- behind the scenes thing is a male-female thing. I think that what we see in this passage and the moment surrounding Jesus' death is, is less of a gender deal and more of a pragmatic versus compassion deal. Because the women weren't the only people who stuck around. John the apostle was there at the end of Jesus' life. Remember, Jesus looks at John when he's on the cross and he says, John, take care of my mom, right? You don't get a pragmatic person to take care of your mom. You get a compassionate person to take care of your mom. He says, John, you're here. Take care of my mother. Behold your mother. Behold your son. Joseph Arimathea comes out. He's a compassionate guy. A pragmatic person would say, why are you wasting your money on things like tombs and burial spices? He's dead. He's never going to know. But apparently Joseph of Arimathea was a compassionate person who saw a need, and even though he never thought he'd get any credit from Jesus for it, he spends a lot of his own money to buy a tomb for Jesus and then spends his own energy preparing his body for burial and puts it in the tomb and rolls the stone in front of it. When we look at the lives of the other disciples who have all scattered, they seem more like pragmatists. Well, he's dead. <laughs> it's over. What are we going to do now? If we stick with him, we're going to get killed too. Let's get out of here. Let's scatter. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get out. And yet there's people in this world who are more compassionate than practical. And those are the people who keep serving even when it doesn't make sense anymore. If you're that compassionate person, chances are you've got practical people in your life telling you that what you're doing is stupid. You go and visit your grandma or you go and visit your mom every day in the hospital and she's in those stages of dementia where she thinks you're one of the orderlies or something. And your brother says or your uncle says, why do you visit her every day? You know she doesn't even know who you are. You're wasting your time, right? You're thinking, I'm not wasting my time. This is my mom. I want to be with her. I don't care if she doesn't know who I am. I'm here because I love her and it seems like the right thing to do. And some of you are in marriages where it's just been hard for a long time and your spouse isn't changing. And all your practical friends are saying, leave her, leave him. 
They're never going to change. They're never going to turn that corner. They're always going to be like this. You're always going to be miserable. And you think, I don't feel like God's calling me to leave. I feel like God's calling me to stay and, and care for them. Is this the right thing to do? And some of you are in jobs where your boss is a jerk. Or you're in homes. Parents cover your ears where your parents are a jerk. You could run away. You could file for whatever it is to get you emancipated from your parents, right? You could quit your job and find a better one, but you feel like, you know what? God has put me in this place so that I can serve these people even though they're never going to reciprocate. That's my lot, and I'm going to do that because I love them or because I'm called to or because it's the right thing to do. We live in a society where we don't care a lot about compassion. We care a lot about the practical, you want to go and visit someone in prison, and your friends say, why? They're in prison. It's not like it's going to make them get out faster, right? You're like, what? You do it because you, you love people, and you love the Lord, and it seems like the right thing to do. This is just my opinion now. I feel like we put way much value on the practical in our culture, and we need to escalate the things of compassion. But sometimes it's not efficient to help a homeless person. Sometimes it's not a practical choice to give someone a, a wonderful memorial service. Sometimes it seems like a costly waste of money to care for someone well who's never going to know you're doing it. But you know what? Compassion's a good thing. And if we're just practical all the time and we just do what makes most financial sense or makes most logical sense, we're going to have a pretty heartless gray world, aren't we? And so there's beauty that we see in these women who, even though sitting there is not going to make him resurrect faster, even though in a sense he's dead and it's over, their hearts ache because their Savior is gone, so they want to be with him. And like Jesus said to Martha when her and Mary were on different sides of the spectrum, he says, she wants to be with me, she's chosen what is better Sometimes it's better to sit with Jesus than to serve Jesus. Sometimes it's better to sit with a dying person than to go figure out their arrangements, right? Somebody's got to do the arrangements. Somebody's got to hold their hand. It seems like a waste of time to go and brush your loved one's hair every day when they have no idea that you're there and they don't care if they look pretty anymore. But you do it because they have dignity and you want to give that to them because you love them. That's called compassion. And it's a virtue, and it's a virtue that's being lost in a society that cares more about efficiency and the bottom line and what makes logical, practical sense. And these women got it. And Joseph of Arimathea, he got it. The Apostle John, he, he got it. And Jesus said, abide in me, stay with me, stick with me. And so they're going to do it whether he's dead or alive. Because it's the right thing to do and they love him. You know, we read this passage in we can't help but see that the resurrection is coming, right? We want to kind of like spoil it for him. Like, hey, 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 I keep sitting there. That's a good front row seats, right? You're in the splash zone for the resurrection. You're in the right spot, right? I don't think there was a splash. I hope not. But they didn't know that. You know, and it's kind of the difference between, like, there are people in this world who are serving their spouse because they hope they're going to change. And there's people in this world who are just visiting their sick loved one because they hope that someday they're going to get better. 
And there's people in this world who are sticking with it and serving their boss or serving their parents, even though because they hope that someday they're going to have a turnaround, right? And that, there's something to that. Sometimes we can get a little consumed with that. But that's not what these people are doing. These people are serving Jesus even though there's no hope. He's dead. You don't come back from being dead. Right? There's no, nothing in any of these passages that would give us the hint that the reason the women are there is because they know he's coming back. Sure, he said he was coming back. He told everyone that. But no one believed him. No one heard it. It seems like the only people who get the fact that he's resurrecting are his enemies who are trying to prevent it. The disciples don't believe it. It doesn't seem like the women are sitting there because they're waiting, right? They're, they're there because they love him. And I think for, for those of you who've been in those times where you realize that you need to serve someone who's not reciprocating, you get to that point that you have to ask yourself the question, do I keep serving these people even though I am 99% sure they're never going to change? Do I, do I keep serving my wife even though I'm 99% sure she's never going to become a Christian? Do I keep serving my husband even though I'm 99% sure he's never going to give me the time of day? Do I keep visiting that relative even though I'm 99% sure they'll never recognize me and their Alzheimer's just going to get worse? Do I keep going to this job and serving my boss and serving my company even though I know there's a 99% chance I'm never going to get recognized for it? Now that, that's a real wrestling match that many of us have had to have. At what point do you bail? And at what point do you say, you know what? I'm not serving because I hope they're going to change. I'm serving because I love them. Or I'm serving because I'm called to. Or I'm serving because God has given me that to do. And I'll do that and expect nothing in return. That's where these women were. That's where Joseph of Arimathea was. That's where the apostle John was. They weren't serving Jesus because they were hoping they'd make him resurrect, right? They were serving Jesus because that's what they felt like they should do in that moment. These women left Galilee and followed Jesus and ministered to his needs, and they were committed to doing that even after he passed away. Just keep ministering. Keep serving. What does Jesus need? I know he's dead, but what does he need? There's something beautiful about that. And there's a time and a place for pragmatism. There's a time to quit your job. There's a time for a relationship to fizzle. There's a time for those things, and yet... There's something beautiful about sticking with something, even though you're pretty sure it's never going to change. And I love the way the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter. He talks about wives who have unbelieving husbands. And if you're someone who the person you're married with is not a believer, I'm sure you've read this passage and memorized it and lived by it, right? He says, wives, submit to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And then he says this, who knows, wives, if you're going to save your husband? Right? He's not saying, serve your husband and he'll become a Christian. He says, serve your husband because that's what God's called you to do, and who knows, it might work. It might not. For some of, us, some of you, you're thinking, it probably won't work. And you know what? That's not like a lack of faith. That's just reality. But you're still in there because who knows? There's something beautiful about serving even then when you know it's probably over because that's what God's called you to and that's what you're going to do. Like I said, we know that Jesus resurrects. Spoiler alert, but still come back next week. He resurrects 
And I think one of the beautiful byproducts of this, these women's service is that they did get to have front row seats when Jesus resurrected. Right? And they weren't just like sitting there for three days and waiting. They had gone home, but then Sunday morning they came back with some more spices because they were still devoted to catering to the body of Jesus. And they found when they got there, the stone was rolled away, and in their surprise, Jesus was alive. Right? Remember Mary thinks he's the gardener? Where have you placed my Lord? Right? And he's like, Mary, <laughs> it's me. They got to witness something miraculous simply because they stuck with him even after it was over. I think the question for us today, those of you who are in a time where it feels like something's over and you're trying to wrestle, should I stick with it or not? Wrestle with that. For the rest of us, what we need to wrestle with is, how can we be people or where can we be people? who pour it out in service of someone else or something else that we will never get credit for. Especially if you're one of those pragmatists in the world. Who is someone that you can bless this week and have no one find out about it? Where is a place that you can go? And I know someone who sneaks up to the church when no one's here and sweeps the parking lot. No one knows but me, I guess. Where is a place that you can serve and get no credit for it because there's something beautiful about serving in a way that gets you nothing. You know, Jesus said that when he talked about the ethic of how leadership development works in his kingdom. He said, I, my leadership style is not lording it over people like the Gentiles do. Here's how you can be first in the kingdom of God. Whoever is last will be first and the first will be last. If you want to become great, become the servant of all. We see that in the example of Jesus who gets down and washes the feet of the disciples and says, do what I do, serve people. Get to the top by going and serving those less fortunate. Something beautiful about humbling yourself and serving people who can't reciprocate in a world who will never know that you did it. Really, when we read about Jesus and who he was, that's exactly who he was as a person. Right? Paul says in Philippians 2 that even though Jesus was equal with God, he didn't consider that something to hold on to. He humbled himself, made himself a servant, and was obedient to God even to death on a cross. He didn't come into this world to be served by people. Jesus, the God of the universe, came into the world to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So even while these women and Joseph of Arimathea were putting Jesus into the grave and serving him. Jesus was in the tomb serving them to bring them to life. Or when we serve people and want nothing in return, there's nothing else we can do in this world that makes us look more like Jesus. Because that's what he was about. I love that story of one of these women who kind of breaks out of the shadows and breaks that jar of perfume and puts it on Jesus' feet and prepares him for burial and when she does that, Jesus looks at her and then he looks around the room and he says, what she's doing is a beautiful thing. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached in this world, this woman will be remembered for what she's done. And she didn't do that to be remembered. But, but 2,000 years later, this morning when we're talking about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, we're talking about a woman who did something beautiful and costly and self-sacrificial and didn't want any credit for it. You know what? 
Now we all know her. She didn't want that. But like Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. As we walk through the sobriety of Passion Week and think about what Jesus did for us on the cross and in his beatings and through that entire ordeal, let's remember that one thing he was dying to create was a community of humble followers who shows the world what he is like by serving everyone else they meet without expecting anything in return to their own detriment and cost. Let's follow in his footsteps as we do that.